You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 25th of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One. Here in London, I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Everything that has made America, America is at stake. That's why today I'm announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. And who isn't? The least surprising candidate's announcement in U.S. presidential history, but has Joe Biden left it too late? My guests Robert Fox and Oscar Juadiola Rivera will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including an uptick in deaths of Afghan civilians at the hands of Afghanistan's government, the reasons why Latin America's pink tide might be going out, and the UK will keep its Salvador Dali lobster telephone, but what else should be saved for the nation? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Robert Fox, Defence Editor at the Evening Standard, and Oscar Wadiola Rivera, Reader-in-Law at Birkbeck University of London. Welcome both. And we will start in the United States, where one of the few remaining citizens who had not already entered the race for the Democratic presidential nomination has entered the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. He is former Vice President Joe Biden, who has had two previous whacks at topping the ticket and who might have spared us all considerable angst and or merriment had he made this decision four years ago. Biden enters the race as the presumptive front-runner with insurmountable brand recognition, but then so did Hillary Clinton. Uh, Oscar, first of all, is he a chance? Let me answer that by by saying that uh, if the definition of madness is uh, doing the (laughs) same thing twice, expecting a different result, then we must begin to ask whether the Democratic Party is mad. Uh, This is exact. I mean, it it sounds so much, and you just said it, uh, it sounds so much like Hillary Clinton again. same kind of uh, centrist stance, same hope that uh, that kind of centrist stance will somehow uh, sway uh, some, so you know, alleged uh, Trump voters, uh, in, you know, on the Democratic Party back uh, to uh, uh, the uh, back to normality. And what the Democrats are not understanding is that there is a new normal. This is the problem. They are still trying to stick to uh, the previous rules of the game and fantasizing about uh, Trump as being something foreign, something that is not American. Hence their emphasis on Russia Gate and, uh, uh, you know, these, uh, these uh, uh, kinds of uh, fantasies. I'm not saying that they didn't happen. I'm saying that they are symptomatic of something that uh, the Democrats themselves uh, are still in denial of. And that, that, uh, that the thing that they are in denial of is, uh, of course, uh, the economy. And here is where uh, you have uh, some interesting uh, candidates in the Democratic Party, not just uh, the senator from Vermont who's trailing behind uh, most polls, uh, uh, behind uh, uh, Biden very, very closely, uh, but also people like Kamala Harris and others. Um, Robert, that's a, a, a fairly brisk setting out of the potential deficiencies of, 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 of candidate Biden. What strengths might he bring to this contest? 
Well, as Oscar was saying, he will play the Hillary card. He cannot help but, but I think it could be a very uh, a poison chalice card, if you see what I mean, in this particular the game. poison chalice card, oh, that, is, yeah, that is an outstanding mixed or metaphor. Or po- poison chalice. <laughs> well, that's next to a poison chalice situation. Um, it's a card that's been dipped in a poison chalice. That's right. And remember, uh, particularly in view of what Oscar has just said, with the new politics and we're in a new landscape, there is a big O shadow behind them. There is Obama. But who was Obama? For, who, who, who did Obama want to be first? Abroad or America or whatever? This, I think, has tainted the whole thing of the era, the last experience in office that both Hillary and um, Biden had. And Biden looks to me from this distance with a very long telescope to be absolutely the Beltway candidate. You know, you could just hear the chatterati in Washington saying, well, he's a pretty good thing. He's stable. He knows. He's got one plus, too, of course. He he does have a big blue collar uh, following. But the new politics, the NP, the new populism, which every election in Europe this year will be talking about, seems to be absolutely absent from the Biden agenda. Oscar, is there something to be said for the hope that the, you know Biden could benefit from the pendulum swinging back? You know, there is this theory that the that electorates, and especially the American electorate, and there's something to be said for it, is capable of these great lurches, but then there's a correction. So you end up going from George H.W. Bush to Bill Clinton, from Bill Clinton to George W. Bush to Obama, which is a huge swing of the pendulum one way, which is answered with a ludicrous swing of the, pe- the pendulum all the way to, to President Donald Trump. Is there something... To, if the Democrats are thinking, look, if we just find a basically presentable white guy in a suit who doesn't seem completely insane, then we might actually just, you know, win this by default. <laughs> you just said it. I mean, yes, indeed, the Democrats are, the, 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 the chatterati, the glitterati are thinking just that. But uh, as Robert pointed out, I do not see Biden doing better in the Bible Belt. That's not going to happen. He's not the kind of uh, uh, candidate for that. Yes, he has 24% of self-identified Democrats behind him. And unlike Donald Trump, I suspect, actually goes to church. And yes, but again, the, the fact that he is precisely that kind of candidate, the well-packaged white man in a suit that uh, bodes very well with uh, the New York Times uh, uh, types, is precisely why the Democrats should not be going for him. It is just as Trump and as Russiagate, yet another symptom of the fact that the Democratic Party has lost contact with uh, uh, most Americans. That is the trouble. What they need is someone who can regain the trust of uh, uh, both Democrats and uh, the the swaths of people who uh, voted for Trump because they are both disenchanted and left behind by uh, an economic uh, program that uh, has failed and uh, that uh, is seen as precisely the legacy of the Clintons and Obama. I mean, this is obviously far from the last time that we will discuss the Democratic race for the presidency, so we will move along shortly. But before we do that, I want to ask you each in turn, and I'll start with you, Robert, that if anywhere among this grand national-sized field uh, you can see a likely winner, who would you be backing at this point? Almost none of the above, (laughs) because there's one thing that is very strong. We haven't 
talked about with Biden is the touchy-feely thing, and it matters in this respect, that what we saw in the midterm elections was a great feminization. I don't mean this in any patronizing Mm. sense, but the new voices, the new movement, the new spirit was done by the women and the women's movement. And if they are going to stand a chance not necessarily now for 2020, but for 2024, the Democrats have got to pull something and right across communities, right across ethnic uh, sectarian boundaries, they've got to pull somebody out of that to, to really get the pendulum, as you rightly put, to swing against, against Trump. It sure as hell ain't going to be Biden and probably won't be any of the front runners that we've been hearing from so far. Oscar, what do you think? I mean, of course, uh, uh, for the future, because she cannot run this time, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez yes. is precisely the kind of candidate uh, that the Democrats need. Uh, failing her, uh, I must say, I was impressed by uh, uh, Senator Sanders' performance in the Fox News uh, uh, setup uh, town hall debate. Uh, I saw him carrying the uh, you know Republicans among the audience with him. And that, to me, sounds different from the Sanders that we saw before. Okay, well, let's move along now and take a look at Afghanistan. A new report by the UN Assistance Mission in Afghanistan contains good news and less good news. The good news is that civilian deaths and injuries due to the country's country's simmering conflicts are down by nearly 25% year on year, from 2,305 casualties in the first quarter of 2018 to 1,773 in the answering period of this year. The iffier news is that a greater proportion of those deaths are being caused caused by the forces of Afghanistan's government and their foreign allies, i.e. by the people who, among other responsibilities, are supposed to be making sure that fewer people are dying violently. Um, Robert, is there actually anything much we can read into this? This could be a blip, could it not? Yeah, but it shows you where the endemic uh, contest in uh, you know, that the, the is going on in Afghanistan and I suspect will go on for some time although I do think that they will come to a, a um, I was just trying to think my Latin not modus vivendi but modus ucendi <laughs> as well you know of, of killing they, they will come there will be some kind of uh, equilibrium part of the thing that, which I think they're not saying in the report by the way, all power to the UN. I've been going to Afghanistan since the late 1980s. They are one of the few agencies that have just hung on in there. Indeed so. And, and, and th- they are worth listening to and looking at. But this is if you rely so much for the muscle behind the regime on air power. It's going to be indiscriminate. It's bound to be indiscriminate. Precision. Um, uh, courageous restraint. M- most of, most of the civilian deaths are from airstrikes, and, and at uh, least half of them women and uh, children. And you're going to have it because still, so far, yeah, because from the air, sorry, you can't tell the difference between a would-be Taliban war band and, and a wedding party. Forget about that. For all the, the nonsense that you will hear from the chancelleries and the ministry spokesmen of, uh, of Western powers that, that, are invo- that are involved in this, it's going to be a, a, a tough haul. I suspect we will have on-off talks with Taliban. You've got to have a critical mass of Taliban elements because they're not a unified movement, as is so often depicted here, I think. And so it goes on, sadly. But the one thing that I think that does have traction, which came in by accident through technology with the Western powers um, after the intervention there, is that they do 
by hook or by crook, be, seem to be making some sort of traction on literacy. And literacy is really the key to the whole thing. The, the, the terrible period of the Taliban uh, regime there was that you had a whole class, a whole demographic cohort that just didn't go to, go to school. And this is where I am hopeful. I do keep fingers crossed, everything crossed, that a sufficient number of girls will still go to school. And the, uh, all part of the Afghan women, I, again, I do not mean to be condescending, but the way that they're stepping up to be in public life, to represent the country, um, it, 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 it's, it's a ghastly story. But it, it, it does seem there are some signs of hope. But it will, it will take years and years and years to, to, to resolve this one. Um, big power intervention, the one thing that they're not really factoring in, I mean, it's not part of the, the, the UN remit of this report, is that we hear about, of course, Trump wants to pull out the Brits in their modest uh, training element. Equally, the French don't quite know what to do. But the Chinese are getting really ready. If there is sufficient stability, they will move. They will move for the resources. And, and really, that um, there is a real danger. Um, how will Pakistan, I don't think it will be able to do much, but how will India react to it becoming a Chinese satrapy, which I think it stands a very good chance of being within 10 years. Uh, Oscar, to, re to return to this, this UN report and the, the civilian deaths due to pro attributed to pro-government forces, at what point, if we're not there already, do, does, do we start getting into the realms very much just looking at it from the Afghan government's point of view of uh, costs outweighing benefits here, because th this does not, I, I, I think everybody understands that this is a government at war within its own country and that in a war there will be civilian casualties, but there does come a point at which the civilians on the receiving end of that start to lose patience. It's not just cause benefit, but actually we are uh, in the brink, if we're not already there, of uh, beginning to speak of war crimes. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that the UN report flags up very clearly. What yeah. really bothered me was uh, uh, the, statist the statistic about casualties caused by pro-government forces uh, being up 39% from the same period last year. And this has to do not only with, uh, uh, as, as Robert told us, the fact that, of course, uh, uh, aerial warfare is uh, uh, imprecise and there is no such a thing as uh, surgical uh, air attacks. But actually, uh, it has a lot to do with uh, operations carried out by Afghan intelligence service special forces, in particular the Cost Protection Force, which is, uh, which is supported by international groups, but which the report says it appears to act with impunity outside of the governmental chain of command. Now, that is very, very problematic. That is not just poor practice. That is here we have the, the workings of uh, uh, what will, uh, uh, what anybody could argue, is tantamount uh, to uh, uh, war crimes, and therefore the the potential failing of uh, the very fabric of the state. Uh, and here we have that, that of course, places Afghanistan in danger. Of, uh, I think that, that is so uh, much the real problem, Oscar, because, you know, in all these agencies that I've dealt with, whether it was the military or the uh, the HUD, the, 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 um, the, the Secret Service, the tribalism, and it comes down to, it's not a, it's not just one tribe like the Popple's Eye or whatever, but it's clan loyalty. And this is going to be so difficult to crack. And they are carrying out egregious crimes uh, against people. It's part of this very complex vendetta. It's part of the narco economy, which isn't so much narco. It's to do with trafficking in 
people, with with transportation and, and so on. And I think that though that if they are serious, and somebody like uh, Ashraf Ghani is a, a serious internationalist, we will come to that point and they'll have to think about what they're going to do. Just as a final quick thought on this, Robert, I mean, obviously it's coming up for what you're up to, 18 years now that Western forces and others have been involved in Afghanistan. Is the country... And, and if you think of Afghanistan and the best case scenario for it, I guess you imagine it turning in, turning it into something like, I don't know, Uzbekistan or Kyrgyzstan, clearly far from ideal, but more or less functional and more or less peaceful. Is that even possible? Is Afghanistan in those terms actually fixable? Well, Afghanistan is Afghanistan. I'm sorry to be boring about it because it's close to, of course, Kashmir mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and uh, the, the, the wild north of uh, um Oh, Pakistan, where you have historic Al-Qaeda still. It's very interesting that you say this, because I am reviewing a biography of Richard Holbrook, whose last job was um, envoy, a special representative, and such was his hubris. He really imagined that within two or three years, he could fix something like the Kashmir problem, which is absolutely interleaved with Afghanistan and with a lot of things that we're seeing going on throughout the subcontinent as well. No, it is it is very much so I generous. Yes, we will have to live with it. Yes, it is important, not because of the, the narco hub and the, the, the usual stuff, the mantras that we heard about why Western forces were there 10, 15 years ago. It's because it's also generates such a critical mass of subclinical terrorist firepower. That's where you go and train people. That's where you can find people. The number of places where you look at ter- terrorist incidents, I'm not talking about Colombo and Sri Lanka at the moment, but almost elsewhere, you find the Afghan footprint. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Oscar Guardiola Rivera and Robert Fox. Coming up next, can Latin America really have forgotten what dictatorship was like? How do we make better cities, places that work for people of all ages and backgrounds and provide the obvious essentials from great transport to perfect places to work, as well as the softer elements that truly deliver quality of life from urban swimming pools to rooftop clubs. Published by Gestalten, the Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities unpacks what makes a great city. Whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need a little help fixing up your own. The latest in our series of beautiful large format books is available now. Buy yours at monocle.com slash shop. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Oscar Guardiola Rivera and Robert Fox. Now, one does not require an especially long memory to recall what was known as the Pink Tide, the conquest of Latin America by left-wing governments in the early years of this century. The Kirchners in Argentina, Eva Morales in Bolivia, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva in Brazil, the apparently immortal Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, among many others. The Pink Tide does now seem to be in recess, however, with conservatives of varying degrees of respectability now in charge in Brazil and Argentina to name two. Um, Oscar, is it, is it an actual thing? Is the pink tide going out? 
No, it's not going out. And actually, uh, the reason uh, why I say that has to do with your ironic uh, comment <laughs> about the various degrees of respectability of uh, Mr. Jair Bolsonaro and Mauricio Macri. The, wor the word various was doing a lot of work there. Ah, <laughs> very kind with them. Uh, take the latter. Mauricio Macri is, uh, 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 you know, is, pre is presiding over one of the worst economic crises bar Venezuela's in the continent. And uh, Macri cannot, uh, uh, and, and no one can blame in this case, uh, uh, the left or uh, leftist mismanagement and so on and so forth. So it's very likely that uh, he's on his way out. And uh, here, uh, I don't want to use the pendulum theory because it's the worst <laughs> uh, way of reading history. Rather, it is uh, a matter of precisely what it has, what it still remains and has been resilient about the pink tide. The pink tide wasn't uh, particularly good at coming up with uh, uh, an alternative economic model. But when it comes to uh, uh, you know, inter-American solidarity, Latin American unity and uh, uh, foreign policy, policy which allowed states to help one another, that was very important and very useful and will be very useful when uh, uh, the economic crisis comes, uh, uh, you know, uh, hitting back with full force Argentinians and Brazilians. And my uh, bet uh, there is that this will happen in less than one or two years. So, yes, our eyes are now uh, uh, on Venezuela and its crisis, but the crisis is all over the place because, of course, it has to do with uh, global economics uh, and the part that Latin America plays there rather than uh, only with uh, uh, internal uh, mismanagement. So in that respect, it is institutions such as UNASUR, CELAC, ALBA, MERCOSUR, those kinds of institutions that allowed the continent to come together and then from a position of relative strength begin negotiations with Canada and the United States. That's what will be required and that's what is required and people do remember that. Uh, but has any of the gloss been taken off the pink tide if indeed a tide can have a gloss? We're having a bad episode for metaphors but you, you, you know what I'm saying by that disaster in Venezuela has it, has it delegitimized that, that Latin American socialism in the eyes of a lot of the continent? We must remember that uh, from the very outset, it was clear that uh, the pink tide could not be reduced and is not reducible to the case of Venezuela. The case of Venezuela is very particular because of its almost exclusive dependence on oil. Mm. So it's very, its economy is completely different from that of pretty much every other country in the continent. Having said that, the criticisms that have been uh, laid uh, uh, at the door of both Chavez and Maduro, uh, some of where some of uh, which are well taken, have been taken and are being uh, uh, learned by the those who still sympathize uh, and or represent the pink tide. And so uh, uh, the uh, uh, fact that, for instance, you cannot uh, continue to subsidize goods without any good reason related to productivity uh, and or the fact, but there are, you know, on the other side, the pluses, the fact that any uh, left party in government must continue to have very good uh, links up to the horizontalist movement so that mobilization can happen, which is what failed the 
Dilma Rousseff, for instance, in, in Brazil, uh, those lessons are being learned. And uh, what this means is that it is the period of the pink tide uh, that uh, is still the source and the, and the, and the well of uh, uh, political lessons in that part of the Americas. Uh, Robert, there is kind of a, a European uh, angle to this. And obviously, I, I'm aware that Portugal is not part of Latin America, but there, there is a connection between Portugal and Latin America. It is the 45th anniversary today uh, of Portugal's revolution. Uh, are there lessons there about how to make sure that once dictatorship is consigned to the past, it stays there? Oh, I think this is absolutely a living phenomenon of serious uh, politics and serious political thinking in democratic Southern Europe. Um, um, My years, through the years working in Italy, I think think the second article I wrote for Corriere della Sera was about whether the the British should pay, uh, the British team should play the Davis Cup in the uh, in the arena in Chile in which uh, Pinochet had carried out mm. the most egregious executions. This is no trivial thing. It is really serious, and it galvanises the parties. And I always felt that Italy was very close. What, 150 million people in Latin America of Italian origin with Italian antecedents? And we can see the vibration, the reciprocation between it, because I think what's going on in the Spanish election and the election, which is bound to happen in Italy following the European um, elections, is very, very important. All these forces are in play. But the thing that I would like to put as a question, because I'm not expert in Latin America, but I would have thought the thing for the whole legacy of the pink tide, the thing that is so important is the activities with one of one Donald J. Trump, who just does not seem to be keen on any kind of solidarity and alliance, even with fellow continentals there. And when you get things like, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the phenomenon of the movement of people and the catalytic effects, which are now observable of migration due to climate change of people like coffee farmers, banana farmers, where these we're getting these very strange diseases that are, are appearing and, and are making the front pages of news papers in the United States, and yet he is not doing anything. And I think that this must play to the movement of solidarity. And they will get support, a lot of support, an important support from Portugal, Spain, and Italy uh, in Europe. Okay, well, finally tonight, to the actually quite interesting work of the British Government Committee with the off-puttingly boring name of Reviewing Committee on the Export of Works of Art and Cultural Interest. Their job, in essence, is to stop national treasures being flogged off. They advise ministers of instances... I'm having a bad day for pronunciation as well. They advise ministers of instances who would put those words next to each other in a radio script in which an export block should be placed on an item in danger of sale overseas to the raising of funds which might keep it here in Britain. It was revealed today that among the latest treasures they have saved for the nation are Salvador Dali's sofa modelled on the lips of May West and an annotated second edition of the works of Ben Johnson. Um, Oscar, it's a, it's a strange way to make a living doing this, serving on this committee, deciding what should and should not be allowed to be sold and taken out of the country. Is this a useful thing to pe- for people to be doing? Are, are there things uh, without which British public life would just not be the same? Look, if that committee didn't exist, some contemporary version of George Orwell must <laughs> invent it and actually would love to do our job. It's just, it's just amazing. Imagine, you know, you're cherry-picking here and there the things that you like. 
this is not just uh, uh, meant to be ironic, but actually, if you look at uh, uh, the workings of the comedian, what they have decided must stay and what must go, you really wonder what criteria are, are they It, are it they is using. entrancingly random, it's, isn't it's it? Tot- it seems <laughs> totally uh, arbitrary. Uh, and, uh, and and that makes it very peculiar. May West uh, leaps, but uh, uh, then you uh, and then the the, uh, uh, the Roman statue that uh, uh, that uh, uh, costs five hundred pounds that, that that must stay. But then the Turners uh, uh, have gone. Other things uh, are allowed to go that should stay. I find it just uh, uh, mind-boggling. Uh, but I'm ready for your next question about the th- the, the, the object that I would like to <laughs> Well, th- this is what we did want to ask you both, and I will ask you first, Robert. Is, is there a particular object that you would like this committee to ensure stays in the United Kingdom, or, or if necessary, that you would chain yourself to to stop it from leaving? Well, there is one that I reported uh, leaving the country where it wasn't going for a very large price, given... It's absolutely stunning position in the whole story of art and portraiture. It's the portrait of Han de Pereja, the companion, freed slave friend of Velasquez, who went with him to Rome uh, when he painted Pope Innocent X. And he did a warm-up portrait of his friend, which is absolutely stunning. One of the great portraits of the world. And it was from a collection in Warwick Castle. They let it go, four million quid. or It was probably a bit more, as I happened to think at the time. Oh, why bother with that? It's an absolute world-class ma- ma- masterpiece. Mind you, what right have we got to hang on to it? It was, it was wonderful going around the Rembrandt exhibition and seeing these wonderful Rembrandts in Amsterdam, but the Rembrandts are all over the world and in people's attics all <laughs> It's completely balmy. Re- regrettably not in my attic. Um, uh, Oscar, what, what would you keep well, by, by force of law if necessary? Plenty of objects should be returned to the rightful owners. Let, uh, let, let me let me begin there. Uh, but I but and let me then contradict myself by saying that the one object that I want to remain here is the obsidian mirror that belonged to John Donne, which is in in the, uh, the British Museum. I'm obsessed by by that uh, uh, artifact, and I had the privilege of holding it in my hands once. Uh, I don't so want before that, the guards apprehended it's, you. It's just amazing. This sort of uh, you know a a. Uh, 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 computer of uh, of uh, of uh, coming from the past with all the magic of uh, the Aztecs. That's the object that I want to stay. Okay, well that does bring us to the end of today's show. Robert Fox and Oscar Guardiola Rivera, thanks for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Teresa Marvulli. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900, it's The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. There's more on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.